Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. Can I ask you to, uh, as you're seated, to uh, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We're not going very far in today. And just ask you also, as you're turning there, to continue to remember to pray for our team that's in Thailand. Uh, they're about at the halfway point. Uh, they'll be home Wednesday at some point. And if you, if you think about them and think that I need to pray for them... Um, of course, you can always pray for things like strength and, and uh, energy um, and protection and things like that. But if you want to pray for them, they're, they're actually right at 12 hours ahead of us. So if it's, say, 11.30, as this little watch says right here in front of me, uh, 11.30 a.m. here, it's about 11.30 p.m. there. Um, that just kind of gives you a way to connect with the team as they're over there. Looking forward to hearing what they have to say when they come back. Let me uh, ask you a question this morning, just by show of hands. How many um, have ever failed at anything in life? There weren't enough hands that went up just then. So let's try this again. How many have ever failed at anything in life? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an all-inclusive question right there. It's not really a trick question. It's just one we need to answer honestly. Um, let me ask you a second question, also by show of hands. Uh, does anyone believe at some point in the, in the remainder of your life that you will fail again? Again, yeah, we, we should all probably say yes to that question. A third question, also by show of hands. Uh, does anyone look forward to the next time you're going to fail? Suddenly there are no willing participants. Yeah, um, I, I don't think that we look forward to failure, but I think if we were real honest with just, the, just who we are, um, I, you know, you don't have to spend very much time around me to know that I'm kind of goofy. I, I'm kind of trip worthy. I trip over myself. I say things that probably aren't, um, uh, that, that are kind of silly sometimes. Um, and I think if we were real honest with ourselves, with our human condition, we could probably say, yeah, I'm going to mess up again. Um, and I think we could probably all, almost honestly everyone say too, um, I'm not really looking forward to it because we really don't know what that is at this point, do we? It could be big, it could be little, it could be somewhere in between, it could be something that no one knows about, but it could be something that happens in front of everyone else, right? That's hope for your future right there, okay? <laughs> well, this morning we're going to walk through uh, just a, a, a sermon I'm calling Wrecked, uh, Five Surefire Ways to Wreck Your Spiritual Life, or really just your life in general. Um, and, and we're going to look at this story in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall of man. I'm operating actually under an assumption this morning. I know that's dangerous, but my assumption this morning is that you don't actually want to ruin your life. You don't want, like I said, we illustrated that a minute ago, we don't look forward to failure. Um, that, that we, I'm also part of this assumption is that we don't want to grow up in, in our spiritual walk with God and feel frustration for the grand majority of it. It's not something, maybe a small part of it, but I don't think it's supposed to be the definitive feeling that we come away with. So, we're going to look this morning, uh, again, at this, uh, at this uh, passage, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read about 13 uh, verses this morning and then make some application um, for us today, all right? So would you follow along with me? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild uh, animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is verse 8. Then the man said to his wife, uh, then the, excuse me, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord uh, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 11, and he, meaning God, said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And that's where we're going to stop. And just try to see if we can make some application here. We could probably break this thing down over a period of weeks, make it into a series if you really wanted to. But I got one Sunday, so I'm going to cram it all in. How about that? Um, and, and see if we can make some application here. Because there's some things that happen that, that if we repeat these, if we replicate these in our life, it's, it's a surefire path to disaster. It's going to ruin some things uh, as they were created to be, to be. So on your outline as you came in this morning, uh, the, the yellow folder, there's a, a, a section in there that says white. It's a white piece of paper that says teaching notes. Uh, that's for you uh, to fill out, to take home with you, to study uh, afterwards if you would like. We're going to walk through five surefire ways this morning to wreck your life, uh, if that's what you intend to do, starting with what we read at the very first of this passage. And the first one is this. If you really want to wreck your life, the first way that you can do it is question the sovereignty of God. Question the sovereignty of God. A little bit of background on this passage. We're not very far into, well, the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 3, right? There's been Genesis, which is the beginning, and then there's been one and two, and here we are at the first of three. We're not very far into this story at all, yet that's where we find ourselves. God has created all things uh, in creation uh, at this point in Scripture. We're still very early, but uh, we can read this in chapter one. Uh, God has completed the creation of his crowning achievement. That would be the creation of man. He has also added to man a helper or a helpmate, as the, as the scriptures say, uh, upping the ante, giving, uh, thus creating mankind. Now we have man and woman, okay? Um, God also created this perfect place for this man and this woman to live, this place called the Garden of Eden. And they really had very little responsibilities. They just had to live and enjoy the presence of God because that's what this place was designed to be. A place where they would commune. I mean, we, we read that God was walking through this place in the cool of the day. And in all of this, God left Adam and Eve with only one requirement. They said, he said to them, basically, do what? Stay away from this one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from the fruit of this tree. And, and so when we pick up the story in chapter 3, we find Eve, the woman, engaged in a conversation with a serpent. Now, I don't know how this works. I don't know, I, I don't think if you and I walked outside and found a snake and started conversing with it that it would converse back. 
but, but many Bible scholars believe this was Satan disguised, and, and he was disguised as one of God's creation. He begins to converse with Eve, and he gets her to a place really early in the conversation just by asking one question. He said, did God really say? You see that in verse 2? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, God didn't say that. But he causes her to question. He, he puts a, a seed of doubt in her mind. Did God really say? Can I say this about questioning the sovereignty of God? This is one of the quickest, one of the quickest ways that you and I can ruin our spiritual life. Because if we question the sovereignty of God, that is, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, all of those speak to the sovereignty of God, then we've instantly created a chasm between God and us that we can't cross. We don't believe he is who he says he is. We don't believe that he can do what he has done and what he says he will do. That's what doubt does. That's what questioning the sovereignty of God does. I read about a story this week, or excuse me, a, a group of studies that was done in the 1950s that led to the discovery of something called the Ash Paradigm. Was, I had kind of heard about it, but I did some more intensive study on it uh, this week. And this group of studies back in the 50s basically uh, were studying uh, a, a subject's willingness to conform even in the face of obvious wrong. So they would ask them simple questions. There was a control group and a test group, just like good scientists do. Um, and, there were, uh, and they would ask them simple questions and show them pictures and say, which line is longer? And they were asked to pick, which line, truthfully, which line was longer. And the first questions, there was obvious differences in the length of the lines or the, the, the circumference of the circles or whatever. And, and so with little pressure to pr conform, uh, they, they found that really like only 1 in 35 people, which are very low numbers, would conform needlessly. As the test went on, the, the length of the lines would get closer together, where it was harder to distinguish right from wrong. And then towards the end of the test, they would get long again, or they would get more distinguishable, but there was a group that had been told at the beginning of this test, when we get to that point, you state the wrong answer as truth, no matter what. And there was really only a handful, maybe two or three people in the test group that were unaware of what was going on. And so as they would show these pictures and say, which line is longer? The majority of the group would pick the shorter line and say, that one's longer. And through this study, they led to, it led to, this, to the discovery of something called the Ash Paradigm, where they found that 75% of people would conform if the majority of the group around them was, was stating a, a truth. It didn't matter if it was true or not. I mean, and it didn't really matter if it was uh, something that was big or not. I mean, what harm is there in, say, in a group, disagreeing with a group that says a short line is long when the long line is really long? There's something built within us, I believe, that causes us to question, sometimes needlessly, sometimes good. And I don't think questioning is bad when there's accountability involved. But when there's no accountability involved in the questions, especially the ones that we, we struggle with about God and who he is and what he does and what he has done for us, it creates problems real fast. It really does. Uh, it, it essentially, minus questioning or criticism minus accountability um, is an admission of doubt in our hearts that grows to unfaithfulness, leads to sin. It creates, like I said earlier, this impassable chasm between 
creator God in us. And, and all of a sudden, we, we don't jive. We can't commune because we're questioning the sovereignty of God. Let me say it this way. Uh, there are some things in life, there are some things about God that he has decreed that we just ought to be settled on. That there really shouldn't be. Um, there are issues that maybe we come up on in life that, that cause us to pause and to reflect. And maybe we're unsure at a moment of decision about which is best, which path to take. But there are some things in life that are very black and white. There, there's large groups within our society that would say uh, there's no such thing as right and wrong. Uh, the Bible would beg to differ. There is such a thing as right and wrong. When we question the sovereignty of God, that's a real easy thing to do. Well, there's no, you can live the way you want. I can live the way we, I want, and there's no accountability there. See, there's that. It comes back to it. Um, there's right and wrong. There's consequence for sin. If we live in, uh, in uh, opposition to a holy God, there, there are consequences for sin. There's also forgiveness for sin. Those things we ought to be rested in. God, uh, there's a delicate order to the universe that is sustained even to this day by God. I, I don't know if you've studied much about creation. Yes, this is all still point one, by the way. Okay, um, I, I'm getting there. I know. I'm, I'm moving. I'm just kind of slow this morning. Um, I, the, do, I don't know if you've studied much about our universe and the way it works, but... Um, do you know that the earth is positioned at such an angle that if it were off just even by a point zero 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 one of a degree, we would either burn or freeze? God did that. What keeps that in place? Well, seeing as I don't have anything to do with it, and I don't think you do either, um, I'm thinking that God has that in control still. I I'm just thinking that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. There's a delicate order. Um, and it's sustained to this day by, by God. God has a plan for marriage and it works. This is one of those um, topics in our society that is very hotly debated. Um, let's just say it like this. God has a plan for marriage and it works. It's good. It honors him. And, and most of what I believe our society says about marriage probably isn't, probably isn't good. Probably isn't. Maybe it's partially good, but it's not all good. God has a plan for marriage and it works. He also has a personal investment and a personal interest in you. And if this weren't true, why would he have ever sent his son to die on a cross for us? God has a personal interest, or personal investment and a personal interest in you. It would be better for our spiritual growth and health if we just said, you know what? Those things are true. I don't have to question those. There is right and wrong. God is God. I'm not. In fact, I like the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You might write this in the margins of your notes there um, just as a reference point. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. That's too much talking, by the way. Who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. And then this reminder on the end that is just so clear. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So what? Let your words be few. If you really want to wreck your life, then start there. Start with question, questioning the sovereignty of God. But there's another way you can do it. You can trade the eternal for the temporary. This is number two there. You can trade the eternal for the temporary. I read a story this week about a man named Donald Shear from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, Donald, uh, back in 1989, was up in Pennsylvania, and he purchased a uh, painting 
at a flea market for $4 because he liked the frame. Didn't really care much for the painting, but he liked the frame. Took it home to his home in Atlanta and began to take the, um, the, the picture out uh, because he didn't, like I said, he didn't really care for it, but he wanted the frame. And when he did, the, the frame kind of fell apart in his hands and uh, he noticed that there was uh, something not right with his painting. Kind of, he was seeing two or maybe three, I don't know, there was something going on. So he began to look and peel up corners around the edge of his painting. Um, and, and he found a very old document underneath this painting that was stored, that was kept there in secret. And uh, so he took it to a buddy who was a historian, and they looked it over. And down the, down the middle of this document, there was a big signature by a guy named John Hancock. Um, and and he, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's one of our founding fathers, right? Okay, just making sure. Maybe you didn't. I, I don't know. Uh, so the, they take this to a local historian society, and they examine it. And there's nothing that says this isn't legitimate. And so they have it appraised over the course of a year, have it, legi- uh, have it what do you call it, um, yeah, whatever you're saying, yeah, he, he, you all said different words, how am I supposed to hear all that? Um, he, he had it uh, confirmed as one of 500 original copies of the Declaration of Independence. When they penned the Declaration of Independence, the, the authors at the time had it pressed and made 500 copies, and they sent those out so that everyone would have an opportunity to know what the Declaration of Independence said. And this man had found one of 500 original copies. And so he did what every good American would do, uh, would do at that point. He put it up for sale. Um, and at the first auction in the early 90s, this, this uh, legitimate copy of the Declaration of Independence uh, garnered him a nice hefty income of about $2.42 million dollars. Later, after it was sold and taken by some auctioneers and some professional historians, they examined it further, and they figured out that it was one of the three best copies ever found. Well, it was sold again in the early 2000s, and this time it only went for $8.14 million. I'll tell you that story to say this. Could you imagine finding something like that at a garage sale or a flea market? Finding something that is incredibly priceless, essentially, even though people paid a definite sum for it. Could you imagine owning a piece of history like that? Or knowing that you have something like that in your possession? And then you get to a place in your life where, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you just look around and say, you know, I got a lot of stuff. Maybe I ought to have a garage sale. And you take this, this priceless thing, knowing exactly what it is, knowing exactly what it's worth, and you put it out right in the middle of that stuff in the garage sale. Maybe you put that same price tag on it that you paid for it when you bought it. Maybe he puts that same $4 on it. That makes no sense, right? Please, some of you guys are looking at me like, why would he do that? Exactly. Why would he do that? Why would he trade something that is priceless in value for something for $4? For anything like that. Yet that's what we see happen here in the story. Eve, as she is conversing with this serpent in verse 6, it says that when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And man, there was an exchange that happened right here that, that I don't know that you and I have the capacity to understand. Where our relationship with God was completely overturned completely reversed and you and I weren't there but I think we would be quite foolish to think that we would have made a different decision in this in this scenario we fall trapped of much less uh, to much smaller things most of the time 
Well, um, I say all of this uh, along the lines of just kind of illustrating this, trading the eternal uh, for the temporary, because that's what happens here in the story. How do we do this, though? How do we do this? How do we trade eternal for temporary? How do we train, trade things that are uh, of the kingdom of God for earthly treasures? Well, I think there's lots of ways. I mean, uh, you think about uh, the pursuits of our society, what our society says is valuable. Um, you chase after those things, you're going to be trading something that is eternally valuable for something that is very temporary. Uh, things like uh, social status or uh, wealth or um, the time that we have, we spend it any way we want for the most part of the society. We trade those things. Uh, maybe we think we have to have the latest and greatest. We have to keep up with the Joneses, that kind of thing, right? It's in our society. You've seen this. When we do that, we trade the eternal for the temporary. Can I just say this to you? That's a pretty foolish thing to do. So if you're really interested in, in wrecking your life, your spiritual life today, you can do one of the first two things, or you can do this. You can follow the crowd. Number three, you can follow the crowd. Question the sovereignty of God, trade the eternal for the temporary, follow the crowd. Let me ask you a couple of questions as we read through this story this morning. Um, who did, uh, whom did God create and give the responsibility of naming all the animals in creation? We didn't really talk about uh, this part of the story. It happened in chapter 2. But, okay, think of the answer, okay? How about this question? Um, for whom did God create a helper? Okay, you got the answer? Think of that as well. Um, to whom did God give the command not to eat from the tree? I'll give you a hint. It's the same answer as the first two questions. Okay? What about this? Who, after giving some of the forbidden fruit, takes it and eats it? Same guy. That would be Adam. Yeah. Uh, real short and sweet answer here. Um, and, and I say it like this because I want you to understand, um, at this point, Adam had been, or at this point in creation, really, Adam had been placed in a position of leadership. I mean, think about it. He was the only guy at this point. And God had said, you name the animals. God had said, uh... I'm going to create you a helper. God had also said, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. Eat of anything else, but don't eat that one. He told him that. Um, and at this point in the story, we read that he has given some of this fruit, uh, like in midway through uh, verse 6 chapter, or, or verse 7, right in there. And he takes it, and there is a decision that he makes to go ahead and eat it, even though he knows the command that God has given him. Um, Essentially, what is happening here is Adam is stepping out of a leadership role that God has placed him in. And he is following his crowd. Now, who's his crowd? Well, his crowd is just one person at this point. It's, it's his wife. It's that, that one that God created for him to be a helper. And he steps out of that leadership role and leans towards the influence of his crowd. Uh, when we decide to be led by popular opinion, we essentially declare that as our God. And I, I use that phrase a lot, popular opinion. It really could be anything you want to plug in there. But when we decide to follow the, the masses, so to speak, um, we essentially declare that to be our God. Can I ask you this question this morning? Will the Creator God accept... Well, let me ask it a different way. What position does the Creator God require in our life? It, it, yeah, a number one position. Um, he doesn't ask of anything else, and he doesn't accept really anything else. And so when we, um, when we follow the crowd, essentially that's what happens, is we've said, maybe even as a believer, God, I believe that you are God, 
but I'm going to follow this. I'm going to chase this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow the crowd. Uh, there's a scripture from, from Matthew chapter 7, and again, you can write this out in the margins if you'd like, um, that describes this following the crowd really good. I like it. Matthew 7 uh, verses 13 and 14 say this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. That's a pretty good description of following the crowd, I think. And so if we want to wreck our spiritual life, then we can do that. We can follow the crowd. We can also do this. Never take responsibility for your actions. Never take responsibility for your actions. This is a part in the story that gets really, um, I guess, personal, especially considering American society where we are. Uh, There's just an air in our society that says, you're not responsible. You can do whatever you want. You can blame it on someone else. You can blame it on your parents. You can blame it on your upbringing. You can blame it on your whatever, your environment, all of this stuff. And maybe some of that is true to an extent. But if you want to wreck your spiritual life, never take responsibility for anything, especially the things that you do, your actions. Notice what happens here in verses 9 through 12. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Do you think God knew the answer to that question already? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Uh, Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here, we're going to spend some time in park on this verse for a minute. The woman you put here uh, with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. It doesn't take real long when, the, when, when all of the stuff hits the fan, really, for, for people to start pointing fingers, right? Notice what Adam does. This is great. This is not advised, but this is, this is great, okay? He does two things. He actually blames two people in one statement. He says, the woman that you put here. I, I wouldn't advise doing that, okay? Um... Because essentially what, God, what he's saying to God is, yeah, she's a helper. She just helped me get in trouble with you. Thanks. Um, and so Adam is essentially shirking the responsibility for the actions that he has taken, the leadership that he has neglected, the, the bite of the fruit that he took. She handed it to him, maybe, yeah, but he took it and ate. He's not taking responsibility for his actions. Well, Eve is no less guilty. She does the same thing. What have you done, Eve? That serpent, that creation of yours, God, it deceived me and I ate. I read a story this week, uh, or actually a quote from a, a Greek tragedian writer named Sophocles that says this, it's a painful thing to look at your own trouble and know that you yourself and no one else caused it. I like that saying because it essentially helps me understand, hey, look, if I messed up, then I need to take responsibility for my actions. Perhaps that's why it's so easy for us to refuse to admit that we are the problem in the mess in which we sit. Uh, Perhaps it would be against our very nature as humans to do such a thing, to say that I am wrong. Those are good words, by the way. They bring healing to relationships. I'm sorry, that's another good one. Not, you guys know what Kevin says, I'm sorry, I love you. That 
separate the two, but I'm sorry and I love you. It's all right, some of you get it in a minute. We've got to take responsibility for our actions. We look at others as if they're the only pig in the mud. And yet we sit here and smell like the same pig that they are, right? We take responsibility for our actions. Let me ask you a question. If you were to go out on the water this afternoon, which is a distinct possibility for some of you, uh, if you were to go out on the water and you were to set that boat wide open and you were to just take off down through the water, what would you leave behind you? Something called a wake. I don't know. If you're not a boater, maybe you don't know that. I'm not a huge boater, but I understand this. When you put a watercraft in the water, when the nose of that pierces the water as you propel that boat or that jet ski through the water, it creates a ripple effect where these waves go out and out and out. And it could easily affect uh, swimmers, fishers, that kind of thing. If you, if you think this is not true, then go out with one of your crazy buddies who likes to, you know, run by the swimmers and that kind of stuff and see if they don't like you and see if they like you very much after it's all said and done. I also got to read some stories this week of uh, these super tankers uh, that carry oil and uh, containers and things like that. And uh, some of these stories report that as these tankers, as they're going through the water out in the middle of the ocean wide open, that they, that they create such a wake going out that it, the, the wake can be felt for like up to 40 miles outside of the, where the boat is once it's all said and done. They could be three hours out further in the water, but there's still wake going out. There's stories of uh, personal crafts being sunk and, and damaged and people losing their life because of the wake of these large ships that are going unaware. They're just going, doing what they're supposed to do. Let me just say it to you like this this morning. If you really want to mess up your spiritual life, don't take responsibility for your actions. But if you want to bring healing to that relationship between you and God then there needs to be some admission on our part. There needs to be some admission about who God is, what he's done, and who we are and what we've done. Or you could just continue to not take responsibility for it and wreck your spiritual life. Could you imagine uh, after the, after the uh, oil platform, the horizon, after it caught on fire and after, I believe it sunk, right? Uh, after it sunk out, out in the Gulf and all of this oil began to billow up from the floor. Uh, could you imagine if, if the authorities had gone back to British Petroleum, the owners of that rig, and said, Hey guys, what you got going on here? What's happening? Where's all this oil coming from? And they had just said, Oh no. Maybe it's from that rig over there, that rig that's owned by Exxon. Or maybe it's from, I don't know. I mean, but guys, your, your rig just sunk and burned and it's coming... No, that's not ours. We didn't do that. Could you imagine the, the, just the stupidity of that scenario if that were to happen as literally hundreds of thousands of gallons of oil billow up and we still are having effects from that today? Well, thankfully they didn't do that. They're still working on it. So, never take responsibility for your actions. That's number four. And, and just real quick, um, I, I almost cut this point out this week, but it was already in, so I left it. It seemed kind of redundant to me. But uh, here's a fifth way that you can ruin your spiritual life. It's very simply these words. Take the easy road. Take the easy road. When it comes down to it, the baseline in the story is that Adam and Eve made decision after decision after decision that were convenience-based. They were the easy decisions. Maybe uh, Adam, or excuse me, Eve's uh, temptation after she took and ate the fruit was described as a temptation that she fell to because she saw it was good for food. She saw it was pleasing. It looked good. 
and that she could what? Gain wisdom from it. Take the easy road. Um, over and over, actually, as we see through Scripture, we see that this is uh, happening and uh, always creates a, a chasm between the God of creation and his creation. Uh, and so we're just going to say it like that. Now, again, I want to remind you of the assumption that I'm operating under this morning, that you really don't want to mess up your spiritual life. Anybody, anybody want to do that? Anybody want to be in the crosshairs of the creator God? Yeah, I don't think so. But I think a lot of times we unknowingly or unwittingly get into situations where we question God's sovereignty, maybe in the midst of a, a painful situation. Maybe we follow the crowd when the crowd is large and, and oppressive and loud, and they say, you should do this. Maybe we have a problem taking responsibilities for the times that we mess up. Well, if we want to actually save our spiritual life, we need to actually do the opposite of what we've talked about this morning. Never question the sovereignty of God. Be content with what God has given and decreed. Lead instead of follow. Take responsibility for our actions. Continue to work out our salvation. Those things. That's how we save our life. Oh, and trust in Jesus. That's the main point of it, right? He's our helper. He's the author and perfecter of our faith.